Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Muppet. Yeah! <laughs> the Michael Podcast. You knew this was coming. Guess who? Oh. We start this thing off. Join me every week for the Michael Irvin Podcast. We'll give you the full MIP experience. I'm talking everything from football to fashion. I will be chopping it up with playmakers, headline makers, and I am throwing haymakers. I'm the MVP of the MIP. Don't miss it. Download new episodes of the MIP, the Michael Irvin Podcast, every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is the last Real GM Radio before everything breaks loose and was excited to have on Jared Weiss of The Athletic. We start out talking about the Celtics, but we, of course, get into a lot of other discussions, including ownership, Boston's and otherwise willingness to spend, what we're looking forward to in the offseason, and a lot of other topics along the way. So I think you'll really enjoy it. Podcast runs a little bit under an hour and and a lot of great stuff here. Hope you enjoy. Thanks so much for coming on. As always, sir. I want to talk to you because, I mean, we're a couple of days from the, let's call it the unfreezing, and so the formal the formal start of the offseason. And I've been thinking about the Celtics a lot, kind of especially as there's been some reporting and speculation this week. And what really interests me about Boston is just they're they're kind of at the at the nexus of a lot of these different questions in terms of the luxury tax and you know some of the key decisions that their guys have to make. Um, but where I wanted to start was actually with Gordon Hayward. What are you kind of hearing? What are you reading about that situation? I mean, I don't think anything has changed at this point because I don't I don't think there was ever a point where he was going to not opt in, and there was never a point at which they weren't going to look into trading him. So, I mean, the stuff that we're seeing coming out is the same stuff that I was reporting on probably like a month or two ago. So, I mean, we'll, we'll you know, it's funny you you said the unfreezing. I'm thinking of it more of like the dormant volcano theory where a dormant volcano like it builds up this cap on the top of it and then the pressure starts to build and eventually that just causes a massive explosion i think that's probably what it's going to be like where there's been so much tampering happening over the past few months so much prospect evaluation happening over the past year that just once the once the league season or the i guess the league year starts there's just going to be an explosion of stuff and happening, and I do actually think that uh, the Hayward thing is probably going to be the slower roll of them because Hayward Hayward is in this weird situation where they could work out a sign and trade if there is like a team that wants to commit more than two years to him, which I highly doubt, but it is possible. But I I just think it's so unlikely that that happens that I think it's just as simple as he opts in and they find a way to move him from there. Yeah, that seems that seems reasonable to me. And the dormant volcano idea is pretty sound because I I was somebody was getting into was complaining on one of my my, my piece for the athletic about they're like why are you saying the off season hasn't started yet it, it has I'm like this is an unusual year because there can't be any moves now and I'm my assumption has been that there are probably some things that are ironed 
ironed out, but they're just not announcing it until the end freezing. You know, like as a technical matter, I don't think that would be a big problem because they're not preventing general managers from talking with one another. You know, that's not tampering. That's not anything else. So the dormant volcano theory does seem pre- pretty sound to me. Now, players and agents talking with general managers, especially if it's not their own team, that's supposedly a little more complicated. We'll see how that's actually manifesting this year, especially incidentally. I wonder if this is happening where now that we have things like I hadn't thought of this before, things like Zoom, you might not have a cell phone record. Like there are way there it's easier to, <laughs> to, to do ways where it wouldn't be, you know, you can't just hand over your phone and potentially get that. There are lots of different kind of kind of spaces now that are more prevalent that, that exist. But yeah, I think that with Hayward, the beauty in some ways of the options system, and I you know, there are parts of it that I don't like, is that they have to technically happen options do before the league there's kind of like right as the league year begins so i think we'll have a lot of clarity there and there would be a way you know that there could be interest in in hayward sign you know like signing a differently structured contract but the risk premium i think this is kind of what you were getting at is that like without that bird in the hand it's just too risky and you know that but but maybe he can you know through through everything can have a bird in the hand yeah i mean the big thing that i guess the one variable that we had been waiting on for a little while was would the escrow be like extremely front loaded this year and then probably go back down to normal in the next few years and therefore would that incentivize somebody to want to lock in long-term security so that they could have you know a middle ground number while there's lower escrow in the future but because now the escrow system is fixed in place for the next few years that takes away whatever motivation there was going to be so you know, I guess the one thing is most people that I've talked to in front offices have speculated that um, that sign in trades are not going to be as plentiful this offseason as they were last offseason. You know, last offseason, it seemed like we had more sign in trades than we had ever seen before. But because of the tax line and the apron not moving up this year, as you expect for annually, not having that inflation, I think it's going to push just so many more teams up against that apron, like the Celtics, for instance, who are over it, and they need to get below it if they want to be able to pull off any of these kind of maneuvers. So those increasing complications, I think, just makes you know makes things way more simplified. Well, yeah, I, I think there are a couple of big forces that are are leading the league away from sign and trades for this year. I think that they could shift moving forward. So the, you got into one of the big ones, and that is acquiring a player via sign and trade. And people get this confused sometimes. It's acquiring the player via sign and trade, not sending them away. That triggers the hard cap, and so that means you for the rest of that league year, for any reason, you can't go over over the apron, which you know roughly six million over the tax that changes it changes a little bit based on the numbers and that means it's it's a lot more complicated and that that is a way to hamstring your franchise you could even think of a team like let's say the lakers where maybe they'll go further over the tax maybe they won't but do they want to commit right now to say we're not you know we're not going further than this and there there are teams that can be that situation or you know somebody like let's say the warriors or the nets where they're so far over that line you can't do it period because you can't you can't be hard capped at a line that is, you know, that is lower than your current team salary unless you do a bunch of stuff like Golden State did last year. The second one, which I think is very important as well, is that because so few teams have cap space, it's kind of harder to maneuver the pieces. Where like last year there was some of it that was just structural. It's like, okay, 
team A and team B need to do something. And like, it's a logical way to make things happen. And I think that's going to change. But then the biggest one, and Jimmy Butler trade is probably the, is the one that inspired me to put this as kind of like the third prong is there aren't that many players, if any, that are truly worth the maneuvering, which is now more complicated than it would have been before. You know, yeah, Jimmy Butler, Miami really wanted him. It worked out incredibly well for them. And this class doesn't have that many Jimmy Butlers in it. So, I mean, Anthony Davis is already where he wants to be. It doesn't, there doesn't appear to be anything. Sure, obviously a team would, would move anything to, to make that happen. It just doesn't look like it's going to. So I think that you're right. There could be some. And the, the other part of this that I think is so fascinating, not necessarily a Boston thing for a bunch of different reasons, is I wouldn't be stunned to see some teams – whether it's through sign and trade or for me using the full mid level, sort of deliberately hard cap themselves. And what I mean by that, Milwaukee is my example here, where you do something that makes your team better, but you say, oh, well, because we did this, we can't spend more than X. And you're limiting your overall expenditure. And like you looked at how low the league payouts were for the tax this year. I could see some teams using that as like kind of like giving themselves a backstop in terms of their spending. And I'm sure Giannis will totally be fine with that. I'm sure. Yeah, but but I mean that's it's an interesting idea because if you get to the, I think one of the big mistakes that especially smaller markets have made and, and Nate's talked well about how the luxury tax doesn't work in the way that it should in that it it is too much of an impediment for the team's word as an impediment and then it is in you know and and the other teams like Steve Ballmer doesn't care you know like so it cre- actually by trying to make it more punishing you actually create a bigger gulf between the haves and the have-nots in terms of ownership, which I think is really interesting. But even so, I think that front offices, or more accurately, ownership, has been too reluctant over the league to go a little bit into the tax. You know, the cost isn't that high, and the loss of a payout, especially in certain years, and I think this is going to be one of them, last year was definitely one of them, the, the lack of, you know, so really what you lose when you go into the luxury tax, so you pay the luxury tax, but you also lose the share that is spread evenly among all of the teams that did not pay the tax. You know, that is money, but if it can make you 1% better, even half a percent better if you're a really good team, like that's huge. And I mean, if you're if you're pay, if you're going to be willing to pay these guys so much on like stars on the bigger contracts, then why aren't you willing to spend somebody who's who's worth 50 percent less of an impact? Why aren't you willing to pay him 80 percent less, even though that's a little bit more than 90 percent less? You know, it's like the 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 costs, I guess the punitive tax on top of what you're paying a guy for a lot of these role players is it really as bad as it seems at first blush if you're just crossing over into like the first tier of the progressive tax line? It's what you know, if you're getting into like the third or fourth tier of the progressive tax line and you're a repeat tax offender at that point, sure. although it takes a long time to get to the repeat tax, you know, that's that's when it's like, okay, maybe we don't want to add this mid level guy because we're paying essentially thirty million dollars for him. You know, that that I understand. But that's not really what the case is for like eighty percent of these decisions. Right. And it can also be a way to, you know, it, yeah, sure, it's probably going to be your seventh guy, or your eighth guy, but those players can be exceedingly important. And that's why the, the combination for me has always been team quality plus, you know, like where you are in the success cycle. So that's why Houston not paying the tax in 1819 was so, was, or was that 17, 17, 18, and then 18, and then 1819 was so galling for me. 
because they were really good and they were, you know, they you could make an argument that they were the second best team in the NBA, you know, before and especially like given how close they got in in the 2018 Western Conference Finals. And yes, you know, Chris Paul getting hurt would have would have been would have been a deal either way. But it's like you can even if you only say like we're going to pay the tax once or twice in in a 10 year period and we're only going to go in one tier, maybe two. You still need to be able to actually do it then. And those are the ones that really piss me off. And that was like a team that just needed, you know, one more on ball creator and they would have they would probably could have pulled it off. It's like the, the margin between being a title contender or being a title winner and not. It was so unbelievably small that going into the tax was kind of a no-brainer. And I guess to bring us back on to what we were talking about before with Gordon Hayward, I don't see the Celtics as that team at all. I see the Celtics and their their quest to get below the tax line over the past few years has been about trying to avoid getting stuck in the repeater tax when they're four tiers deep into the progressive tax two or three years from now when they're paying Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Kemba Walker – if they want to keep Marcus Smart, you know, Marcus Smart right now is only making about $13 million. He's going to cost a lot more than that if they want to resign him. So, you know, they're, they've been looking ahead and realizing they're going to be well beyond the tax line for a long time. So they've just been wanting to delay the start of that repeater tax calendar so that they don't find themselves with one of those examples where they're paying more in tax than they are in actual salary a few years down the road and things get really out of hand. Of course, you know, the next TV deal is probably going to make them all even richer. So what does it matter in the end? I mean, hey, look at uh, look at Utah. This was supposed to be the worst economic moment in NBA history, basically. And Utah still sold for, you know, it had a price. So all these owners are really or governors are really fine when it comes to finances at the end of the day. And they know they can always sell off of a little bit of equity if they need to to make up for whatever losses are taking on by paying the luxury tax. So that's why I just I always think it's BS whenever these teams are trying to, you know, you know, trim a little bit or here or there. I mean, I get it with Tillman Fertitta because it's Tillman Fertitta. But the rest of these owners, I think it's just kind of crying wolf for the most part. Well, and with with Fertitta, it's different because if it had happened just post turndown and I mean, his 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 challenges have been pretty well documented, but this happened before. And so it's it's a different conversation. And I, I like that you brought up the idea of, you know, keeping keeping under the under the tax in the immediate and then doing long term. Now that has at other times been a cover, including for the aforementioned Houston Rockets. But with Boston, it certainly appears that that's where they're going. And they haven't really shied away from setting that table. You know, they got Kemba Walker. They already knew at the point when they when they acquired Kemba Walker, technically through Simon Trade, mostly to do a solid for Terry Rozier, um, that they were eventually going to have to pay Jason Tatum, and he had this wonderful year. And then, as you brought up, you know, maybe Marcus Smart, and they, you know, Celtics are always optimistic, as every team is, about the players they draft. So maybe Romeo Langford or Robert Williams or one of those guys becomes good enough that you have to pay them too. And so I buy it in their case. Now, there is the always the caveat of let's wait until we see it, but I think that it is it is reasonable for them. And also, I, I, I mean, I, my understanding is that Boston's revenues are, are sufficient, that it shouldn't be a problem. Also, Boston, you know, a little bit fortunate that the years where it'll be the worst for them, you know, like let's say like uh, the, so the, the two years where they have Jalen Tatum and Kemba Walker all under big contracts, assuming they don't move Kemba. Those years will probably be full 82 game seasons, here's hoping. So that it's a little bit different, maybe hopefully with fans. So it's a little bit different than eating it this year. And I think that's an interesting question for Boston and for everybody else is how do teams 
capacities and willingness to spend change when not only are they, you know, getting reduced revenue, but part of it is, you know, you're not you're you're not getting that team on the floor for your ardent home fans. It's a good point. And I mean, I, I don't the the um the ownership group is very coy when it comes to talking about business, whether it's the fact that they've been they've actually never really given any clear indication of what kind of tax commitment they would be willing to do. Um, they, they definitely have they, they basically have said we'd be willing to pay the tax for a contender. And that's what they've always been saying the last few years. I mean, we know from the past and we expect from the future they'd be willing to go pretty deep. But like also for business stuff, they've been they, uh, I don't know if anyone here has seen what the TD Garden used to look like a couple of years ago, but it was this giant like block of concrete up against like this really beautiful bridge right next to the water uh, in the what's kind of the west end of Boston right next to the north end. And then over the past two years, they've built this like super construction of luxury apartment towers, all sorts of like restaurants, luxury shopping, movie theaters, all this kind of stuff. They turned it into what's supposed to be kind of like an L.A. Live type situation. And I'm pretty sure the Celtics ownership group is or one of the investors in that. Um, and obviously right now is a really bad time for luxury housing in urban areas because there's a massive run on all of it because of COVID. Um, and so now is a bad time for business for all all that kind of stuff, but uh, they, I'm pretty. I'm sure they're pretty confident in the long run that that's going to be a very profitable endeavor. And they're also they're very really heavily invested in all sorts of different like sports science technologies and all these other technologies and and areas and like bio medical and all this kind of stuff that is really taking off. So I'm pretty sure business is going very well to the point. I mean. I'm sure there's – I'm sorry. Siri wants to say this, I get in this. But I mean I'm sure the Celtics are one of these teams that they operate uh, I guess in a silo where they're trying to operate off of their own revenues. But God forbid if the ownership group has to dig into their own pockets to put the operation afloat for a little while, it definitely seems like that won't be a problem for them. That's a great point, and it gets into something that I think is so striking around the NBA is like these not only the individuals involved, but also sometimes the team as a you know as a driver of it can have these other connected but not rigidly connected enterprises. I mean, the Warriors Chase Center stuff is a pretty pretty clear thing there, and you can see various various complexes and structures around the league are, are kind of going in that direction. It's not really a big surprise, especially when you consider the deep pockets that it takes to own an NBA team often align with the deep pockets necessarily to do other sorts of like capital investment and all that. So yeah, it will be, it will be interesting. And, and, you know, each ownership group has the right to just like players do to kind of choose their own destiny. They have the right to choose how separate they want those books. And, and also like if a team wants to operate at a deficit, they can. Now I bristle a little bit at the idea that like teams always have to be profitable and everything else, though it's not my money either direction. But you, you can see those kind of inform the judgment, especially when you think that they, it could lead to positives in other areas. And I mean, let's be let's be real. Like these owning a basketball team is it's like buying a Ferrari. You're not buying it for yeah. the profit value. You're I've, buying used, it because, I've used owning artwork before. Like that's kind of it's, it's it's like, you know, if people can come over and see it, it's it's about no people knowing that you have it, all that sort of stuff. It's not about like that thing, you know, generating money for you unless you want to like form a museum or, you know, drive your Ferrari around and let people ride, you know, like pay for re- rentals or rides or whatever. Yeah, this would be like if I bought a Picasso and I posted a new Instagram photo of it every single day just to make sure everybody remind, was reminded that I have a Picasso. Right. And and there's an element of this that I think is so fascinating uh, for better and for worse. And I think that people who have this capacity should think long and hard about whether they want this. 
is that for a large portion of incredibly rich people, even with all the other stuff they've done, they will be most public and in some ways most known publicly for owning a sports team. So you can think about whatever businesses you started, whatever you ran, whatever your other your other em- enterprises were. There's going to be like I'm thinking of like Arthur Blank for this, or you could go. I mean, the most interesting would maybe even be somebody like Herb Cole. I mean, who was a senator. <laughs> um, you could you could like that. The most public thing in most circumstances you will ever do is own a professional sports team, and that can work out super well, depending on what you are, or it could work out poorly, or you could not – but no matter what, it's going to affect that. And so I, I wonder sometimes about the decision-making process there. I mean it's, it's a status thing, but also like it makes you a more public figure than you would be just about any other way. Sure. I mean we all know we all know James Dolan is pretty infamous for his mismanagement of the Rockettes, and that's the main thing we know him for. But maybe, I guess, owning the Knicks has offset the, all that bad press for him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and so, I mean, and there are plenty of people who are – like you could, you could even think about somebody like Steve Ballmer, where Ballmer was well-known in his own right. But I think the Clippers has fundamentally changed his public, his public persona. Despite not changing his demeanor or anything else, he's the same dude. It's just that he's doing <laughs> it in a, in a different locale. Oh, that is a great point. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Is Ballmer – is Bomber more famous now, considering he's like a legend in the tech sphere and the business sphere, and he's responsible for products that kind of define our existence? I, but yeah, I think I agree. He probably is more well known because he's he is now known to a new sector of people, which are sports fans or NBA fans. But you're right. He probably is more relatively popular now than he was back in like even the late 90s when he was on top of the world. Yeah, it, it's really it's really fascinating. And I think for some people, that's kind of why they want it is to, to, to get that profile. And because if you if it, if it happens and you do it well, then it gives you a level of stature and a level of fame that you never had any other way. Like, sure. I, mean, I mean, I think Joe Lacob is a very great example of that. Yeah, I mean, I, the only reason I would buy an NBA team is a Cynic Saguji main court side, but I guess there are other reasons. <laughs> I mean, the other reason is to so that you can, you know, you can the team that you love that you can try to see if you can run them correctly, but that's always a, a very deep risk. And I'm excited to see in Utah. You brought up you brought up the the new ownership there. Having somebody who is who is wealthy and grew up a fan of that specific franchise, it fundamentally changes the stakes. Like it, I, I'm, I'm at because like if it doesn't work, it feels like it's going to be so much more viscerally disappointing. But if it does, then that's amazing. You're right. I, I do. I do wonder how it's like. How is he going to be as an owner? Because generally, you want ownership to be paying close enough attention that they're informed and they're a and they they're they're a positive addition to the basketball decision process without putting too much of themselves in the way of the process and like trusting their GM. And so, I mean, th- this guy is incredibly well liked. Ironic or coincidentally, uh, uh, Ryan Smith is like really tight with Danny Ainge. So it's funny when his name popped up. I'm like, oh, that's the guy that Danny Ainge is always tweeting at. And I thought his name was Ryan Qualtrics. So I'm like, oh, that's a pretty cool last name. And of course, you know, I learned more eventually of who he really is. And he seems like he's pretty beloved in that area already. Um, anyway, he was already kind of beloved public figure. So this almost like cements him as the new like you know face of 
Utah to the world. But I, I would, from everything I've heard about him, he probably should make a really good governor. But at the same time, you know, some of these guys, they come in and they're like, oh, I've always wanted to own the team. I've always wanted to make this move and that move. And it turns out it might not be the best idea ever. So maybe there's a few growing pains here or there. But I mean, they've they have such a good operation there. Their previous ownership was all was already so renowned for kind of striking that balance pretty optimally of how involved they should be and how supportive they should be. So I'm pretty I'm imagining he's going to follow that lead. Here's hoping. And yeah, I'm happy you brought up the Millers because they really have done that. And you could you could bring up different examples. And also there's some where, you know, being successful leads to the idea that you that they did a really good job. And, and generally, I think that's true. Like San Antonio. I mean, yeah, it's it certainly it certainly appears that way, given the stability and the structure they've had. And so, yeah, there are kind of these two threads. One is as the head and key decision maker of the organization, as aggressive or non-aggressive as you want to be individually. And then the other one is basically willingness to spend. How, how much of a pocketbook are you going to be? And so we'll, we'll see how those two things work out for the Jazz. And in, in some ways, like there, there are these interesting parallels with, with the two teams, though I would say the Celtics' present and future is, is brighter than the Jazz. Of just like, okay, how, are, how happy are you with where you are and what is it going to take to get beyond that? And I think that's maybe what led to a little bit of the discussion about a potential Drew Holiday trade is, well, that's a way potentially, depending on the structure, that the Celtics could get better. See, that, that's the funny thing is Drew, I mean, who wouldn't want Drew Holiday, right? At his price, the timeline on this contract, because you know you're getting him for a year and there's a chance you could talk him into taking that option. Um, but you would you would feel pretty confident that you could retain him if you're obviously willing to pay up. Uh, but so if you're getting Drew Holiday, your Boston, who are you giving up? Like who is he replacing? Because he could he could plausibly replace any one of Marcus Smart, Kemba Walker, or Gordon Hayward. But if you if he replaces Gordon Hayward and your lineup is Kemba Walker, Drew Holiday, Marcus Smart, Jason Tatum, and Jalen Brown, obviously that's a bit of an issue with the center position. Although I've been I'm a very strong uh, advocate for Michael Ball, and I think that lineup probably could pull it off. Or you have I guess Smart coming off of the bench then next year and daniel tice is still starting whatever it may be it's a uh, like there, there's a it's kind of tricky to find the structure like the the lineup that makes perfect sense and optimizes bringing in holiday and then obviously if they're trading away gordon hayward and their draft picks this year i don't think new orleans wants gordon hayward uh i guess there's some value in him but like if you're trading away drew holiday and you're just getting the 14th pick in the draft and a couple other late first round picks you want to get a player that makes much more long t- uh long-term sense for you than Gordon Hayward. Yeah, I think there are a couple of parts to unpack, and I'll, I'll actually start with something that, that's parallel to what you said about like how you replace them, is that part of what makes Drew Holiday so intriguing is that he brings a lot of things to the table and doesn't take a lot off. And so he's a, you know, a very good defender. He can do things on ball. He can also function off ball. And that combination is very useful. However, the Celtics might have the highest number of players who can kind of do enough of those things that having an, another creator, you know, it helps. I'm never, I'm not going to say that, but I think you can make an argument that while Holiday helps everyone, he helps the Celtics less just because they're so good at those things already. I, I think like those Celtics need him the least out of any team out there because like I mean, Drew Holiday is like a, a nice balance between what Marcus Smart does and what Kemba Walker does. He's not quite as great as either of they are at their like most elite skill. You know, he's not the great pull up score that Kemba Walker is. He He's not the you know extreme versatile large defender that Smart is. I mean, Holiday is 
probably the second best guard uh, on defense in the NBA to Marcus Smart if we're not including Ben Simmons in that calculus. But I do think Smart is significantly better guarding up at the four or the five than Holiday is, although Holiday certainly is pretty great at it too. But Smart provides you just enough of that extreme end of the versatility that it allows you to try to do microball and other things like that. Uh, so you know, Holiday, it's almost like a compromise between those two with the idea that it would be great if you could take the best of both worlds from those two players and put it into one player who could do it all. So then you could add another player that has a bunch of different strengths that could, for instance, give them more presence getting through the paint and getting to the rim, which was something that they were kind of missing uh, last year. So I, I just he doesn't really solve that issue as much as like getting a truly deadly role center um, or a center that can shoot because Daniel Tice used to be known as a shooter, but actually shot pretty terribly last year. I think those are the things that will actually address weaknesses for them because they're pretty much set as far as perimeter playmaking goes. They're just about the best league uh, team in the league at that. Well, and, and one of the other potential theories behind Holiday on the Celtics would be you, you brought up the idea that he's kind of a best of both worlds would be especially if he functioned as like a Kemba replacement eventually. But there are two problems. One, I don't think that New Orleans is super interested in, in Walker because he he's properly paid. You know, I, I don't think there's depending on his health. I don't think he's like heinously overpaid or anything but also he's a lot older than than this young core that they're building with zion and brandon ingram and whichever other players they think qualify and then the other funny part of that is you would think okay well holiday for walker you know as a fundamental place but you could argue so you could argue the fact that like swapping some of their skills you know especially if jason tatum's going to be taking on more of the creation load we saw him do that at points in the playoffs that can work but one of the funniest elements of this is that sometimes if you're going to make that kind of a, a swap you're doing it because one player fits your timeline more. You know, like, you could do that. Kemba Walker and Drew Holiday are almost exactly the same age. They're like 36 days apart. Right. It's, yeah, so, I know that because Drew Holiday is one day older than I am. Yeah. God, you're young. That's gross. Um, <laughs> considering so I had graduated from UCLA before Drew started, that makes me feel super <laughs> old. Um, and But so, yeah, I mean, Kemba... May of eighty of nineteen ninety drew June of nineteen ninety and so yeah you can make an argument miles on the tires fitness all that like you know like that that if Kemba's you know if his knees especially are are limited that you're you're kind of risk mitigation there but but as you were kind of getting into it's hard to figure out how this trade would work because I don't think the Pelicans are interested and yes there could absolutely be a thirteen there there are a, a different ways to do it but Boston they're kind of in this weird like kind of kind of golden handcuffsy situation where they're very good but they're good in a way that moving something might not make them better. Yeah, and, and let's be clear, Drew Holiday has played over 70 games once since he left Philadelphia. That's true. Which was in 2013. And this year he played 61 games out of, what, 72? So you know, mildly healthy this year. You know, not really too much health issues. But the, he has not been – in the middle of his career, he had a lot of health issues. And ever since then, he's you know generally had to take about 10 to 12 games off a year. So he's pretty much in the same spot as where Kemba Walker is. I think they're pretty much – it's they're like the same opportunity except that Kemba is an elite scorer and very good playmaker – who is like a good who's a hardworking defender that can help you uphold a good uh, defensive scheme but in the playoffs will definitely be picked on a lot more and that's your weakness while Drew Holiday is 
a solid score, a very probably a better playmaker than Walker, but he's a very good playmaker, a uh, very good rebounder, and obviously one of the best defenders we've seen in this generation. So it's like you're there, there's nothing that New Orleans is getting out of this deal of getting rid of Holiday to bring in Kemba Walker, except for a longer term financial commitment, which, which they don't want. Because frankly, they're best off trying to play the free agency market next year offering up an opportunity to somebody to come join Zion Williamson and Brandon Ingram. And of course, most importantly, Lonzo ball, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it, that could be a real pitch. So I don't, unless they're getting you know somebody in their mid twenties or even early twenties, that could be a good starter for them. That could be a, I, I guess a, a good playmaker and shooter, which is probably what their biggest long-term need is. I just don't see any reason for them to do anything to clog up their cap for the next two off seasons. Totally fair. Uh, something that has gotten plenty of murmurs and it's not a surprise, both given Danny Ainge and also given the Celtics overall structure is the idea of them consolidating, you know, potentially moving some of their multiple first round picks in order to get a single better asset or using those to do an overall upgrade. Are there any potential fits that you've identified as like, you know, a logical, a logical way to kind of turn a couple of things into maybe one better? Yeah, you know, they could probably trade up to number eight or nine if they throw in probably somebody like Romeo Lankford or Robert Williams into a deal with those picks. It's it's possible that those picks already can get them there. It doesn't sound like it based on just all the noise that's been coming out for the past couple of weeks about, I mean, everyone in the league knows that they're trying to trade all those picks and that they desperately need to consolidate. They don't have to, what's good for them is they don't necessarily have to get rid of uh, two or even all three, but they probably need to get rid of at least one of those picks there um, because they can use, there's a couple guys like Leandro Balmaro, at the end of the draft or at the end of the first round that they could just use in stash. So, you know, there, there's, you know, that's an opportunity for them, but frankly for them, they have, they have so many young rotation players that they've drafted over the past couple of years that if they're staying in this draft, they need to get somebody that could be a real starter for them. And what I love, what I love about this draft is that, you know, obviously people hear weak draft because there's not a superstar at the top of the draft. And then they just call it a weak draft and they just assume everybody sucks. And that's not the case. This draft probably doesn't have any all NBA players in it. You know, there's a couple guys that have a chance at that, but it's flush with guys that could be good starters. Like the first, probably pretty much everybody in the lottery, I could see being a solid NBA starter and maybe all the way up to 20, I could see them being at least good, good rotation, if not starter players. So, you know, like guys like Onyeko Okungwu, if he's falling, if, if Washington can get him at nine, I can't imagine Washington trading him just because he's like the exact guy that they want. But that is like the absolute answer for what the Celtics are missing. Uh, as we saw against Bam Adebayo, who's kind of his player comp to a strong degree uh, in the conference finals. So if they can manage to get, they probably would have to get up to eight to make that deal or seven, where I know Detroit has been sniffing around about that triumph for the picks, but I think they probably want more than just the three picks to make that deal. Um, and they've also they've been putting out that Patrick or somebody's putting out that Patrick Williams as a promise from them, uh, which I've heard from many places uh, on and off the record. But so, you know, I don't, I don't think that's a smokescreen with Boston. Cause I haven't heard from what I've heard. Boston's not that enamored with Patrick Williams. And obviously it's a pretty strong reach on Patrick Williams. So it's, you know, it's really hard to read through all the smokescreens there, but bottom line is, 
you know, guys like, um, I mean, Devin Vassell would also be a good one, but there's an outside chance he could fall to him. But those kind of players are the guys that I think they would be willing to trade up for. And they'd probably be willing to sacrifice one of their good young pieces that they've drafted in the past couple of years. Okongwu is fascinating because I, I, I think that I'm a little bit, for, for me, it's more the could be rather than will be, but the could be is pretty strong. You know, like he, he could end up being an interesting switch guy. He could end up being a, a stable and his, his shot isn't terrible. It's not, I don't think he's, it's built out all the way there just yet, but I could see the interest for the Celtics and especially if they believe in their development program. And if that's kind of the cost of getting it now. I would be very interested as bo- in Boston in getting somebody like, you know, if they could pull Miles Turner, that would be, you know, I, I think Turner, A, he's closer to being that guy already. And yeah, he's paid more, but I think the Celtics can kind of make that work. Now, is it, it, can you do that without give, without giving up something essential? Would the Pacers do it? My my instinct is is yes, but I'm also not completely sure because like there's this weird duality with Indiana, and I've been dealing with this kind of all you know like I part of what I do is analysis, part of it is you know you try to do a little bit of prediction. Is Kevin Pritchard never really got to see his whole team together last year, and they added a new coach, so maybe he's thinking like maybe there's a lot of untapped and I think potential there, and I think with Miles Turner offensively there absolutely could be. I mean that was you know the idea Jaron Jackson with Taylor Jenkins took a bunch of threes. I think Turner could do that too. It just wasn't Nate McMillan's game. But if you can get, you know, if the Celtics can make a good enough offer where it's like, well, this just makes us a better team, I think they can get him. And I think Turner helps the Celtics a lot. I mean, there's that's a perfect fit for Gordon Hayward. I've, I've reported on this before. It's like Gordon Hayward's family is in Indiana. He, he's he got his place in Indiana. He wants – he would be very happy to be back in Indiana. And there, everything that I've heard from people in Indiana over the past couple of years is that they've been wanting to go smaller and modernize their offensive system for a while now. And their coaching hire definitely indicates that that's the way that they want to go. And so there's just always been this assumption that if Sabonis could really break through and show his potential, then that would finally give them the clearance to trade away Turner. And so that's why we're in the situation that we're in at this point. And so especially with T.J. Warren doing what he's doing, T.J. Warren is a pretty good stretch for Gordon Hayward to be the perfect complement to those guys. I mean, you could see a system where it's you know Brogdon, Warren, Hayward, Sabonis, and then whomever the two guard is because Oladipo clearly wants out. Lamb is hurt for the year, so it's not clear what uh, how that's going to shake out. But um, you know that that's a that's a pretty good foundation for a very exciting offense that has you know a lot of dynamic skill at every single position. So I I think that's a that's that would be a really good play for them. Obviously, if you're going to be trading away somebody that's on a pretty reasonable fixed salary like Miles Turner and is so much younger than Gordon Hayward, you're going to want some sort of youth in return. So you know. I think for salary purposes, it'd be really hard for um, for Boston to tack on another young player, but they obviously can sweeten the pot with draft picks. And trading away the 14th pick plus Gordon Hayward to make sure you get the, their center for the future, I don't think that's a pretty hard decision to make. That's a pretty easy decision to make, at least in a vacuum, not compared to what other, you know, what other offers you have. But you know, with Gordon Hayward's injury situation over the past couple of years, I think that's scaring most teams away more than focusing on how well he played for most of the season, um, especially at his age. So 
that that's like the most obvious. It's so obvious that it probably won't happen just because I feel like these super obvious trades that make total sense never seem to actually come to fruition. And of course, there's always somebody who doesn't actually leak from their front office that has a better offer uh, waiting in the wings. So we'll see who that ends up, ends up being. But I, I do think that would be a pretty good approach for Indiana to take. Another part of the potential sales pitch for the Pacers is, I mean, it seems like Gordon Hayward would be amenable to resigning. I don't know that he'd take like a quote unquote pay cut off of what he's hoping for, you know, down the line. Also, that deal could, if they, depending on what the two sides want, could be structured as a sign-in trade or as an opt-in trade. You could kind of do it either way, depending on what, what else is going back and forth. But thinking more about the future of the Pacers, you brought up the idea that you could slot Hayward and War next to each other. But I think the other important part is that Hayward can do some creation and he can also move the ball when the ball's in his hands. And so what that does, if you think about a kind of decentralized offense, and it wouldn't surprise me if Nate Bjorkren was interested in that, what having Hayward does is it gives you more flexibility if Oladipo is not a part of the future. Because if I think that Malcolm Brogdon works well as a, as kind of a cog in the machine, but I don't I don't think of him. Maybe that's just me being a little bit lower on him. Maybe I'm wrong of being that guy. You know, being like the the engine for a top fifteen offense, depending on surrounding talent. But if you put him and Hayward together, then you need a little bit less creation from the other perimeter starting spot, and so that means whether it's Oladipo leaves and you have a little bit of cap space, or if it's you trade Oladipo, instead of needing a specific kind of backcourt player, you could go in a lot of different directions with that, you know, with, with, with Oladipo. And if the, you, you, you could even take a couple of rolls of dice, you get some lower end assets, see what works out. And I think that that's, it, it's appealing for, for Indiana, both because it seems like they've always wanted to stay competitive. And so it it raises their floor, and you can make an argument that yeah, it lowers their ceiling. But if they were always if they prefer Sabonis anyway, I'm not sure that does dramatically. Now I disagree with that assessment, but if they but if that's how they feel about it, I mean I think there's a ceiling on the Turner Sabonis combo anyway. I don't see it working unless unless Turner is shooting. 39% from three, which has just not been happening. Um, I mean, you know, the, the important thing with Miles Turner is that Miles Turner is somebody that just seems great on paper, but then you watch him, and at least over the past year or so, he's been a little underwhelming compared to where he thought he was progressing from a couple of years ago. And a lot of that could just be the system. But, you know, he didn't shoot that well last year. He wasn't that impressive as a role man or out of the post. I mean, he just his game definitely seemed like it stagnated or even receded a little bit. And at this point of his career, that would be very concerning, except for that his age is still I think he's still 24 or he'll be 25 this year. But he's still relatively very young. And he's also kind of at the age where a lot of centers finally blossom. And what's good is if you, you if you put him in a team like Boston that plays small or I guess contemporary since most teams play that way there's no longer this you know this dichotomy between the bigs it's like he's clearly the center and everybody else around him are clearly perimeter players so at least at least like he has a little bit more um like there, there's a very clear dichotomy of what his role is at that point which I think will be beneficial for him yeah, I think so too. And Turner was a, I thought he was a very positive defender in the 18-19 season. And th- last year was weird. And I I'm, I'm think that can happen. And as you said, young centers, it often takes them a little while to figure it out. And so Boston could see un- kind of underappreciated talent and untapped potential there. So yeah, I think he's the type, he's not like an un- unbridled superstar. You know, you think about the, you're saving your chips so that you can get the next James Harden. Well, I don't know if that player is necessarily available, but at a certain point, 
you just want to elevate where you are. And I, I think Turner is an interesting fit for that. Are there any other players that you've identified as logical kind of targets for them who make them better, but maybe aren't, you know, superstar level? Um, I think they, I was surprised they didn't trade for Nemanja Bialisa last year. I feel like he's the exact kind of guy coming off their bench that they're really missing. And I wouldn't be surprised if they try to make a move for him just because I feel like Sacramento needs to start moving a bunch of their redundant pieces around. So I wouldn't be surprised if they just made some sort of small move to get a hold of a player, uh, either him or a player like him, but just somebody that they can really count on to bring them some level of just offensive competence and obviously some sharp shooting off of the bench. And they're, they're definitely going to, they're definitely going to draft at least one of those kind of guys, but they, but you know, they need to, target somebody through free agency and i just think that they could probably target one of those kind of guys who trade as well yeah i like that fit dario Saric could potentially be available i like bielitz's skill set fit better um i think that he you know especially when you think back to what bielitz did in europe before he came over i think that he can have a higher level there and takes a little bit off boston's backup guards depending on who that ends up being and we don't really know that uh, but we'll go big picture, you know, for a few minutes. Just oh, you know what? Hold on, just something that just came through while we're talking. Shams having a one-on-one with Victor Oladipo, with Oladipo saying that he's committing fully to the Pacers franchise for this upcoming season. Interesting. So I don't know if that means anything. He denied the uh, the report from uh, Jay Michael that he was telling players in front of his teammates that he wanted to go play for them. Um, I mean, I reported what I reported a while ago about the fact that he's been looking elsewhere is that people from around Indiana were literally telling me that his camp has been outwardly saying that he's going to go to Miami or he's looking to move to a major market and become a bigger star next year. So like they've been, they were pretty unabashed about it. I would bet that that Jay Michael report is probably accurate. I think Depot's just been trying to do damage control to both maintain his good image and make him viable on the trade market. And Indiana is also probably begging him to go, Hey, can you please restore your trade value so that we can actually trade you as opposed to just dumping you, which we're not going to do. Cause if you're Indiana, you're going to, you're not going to, you're not going to trade him for nothing. You're going to at least ride out the season with him If you're not getting any good offers, I'm sure they're calling, Andy Ellsberg in Miami every single day being like, all right, do you want to trade Tyler Hero today? Okay, you want to trade him today? Yeah, but or hell, maybe even Kendrick Nunn, but <laughs> anybody really. But I, I I think Oladipo is doing damage control for the most part, and I'd be blown away if he is somehow still there by the trade deadline next season. Well, and the other part of this is you, there is an argument that it's not only for the fan base, but also you know for potential teammates trying to calm those waters. But the other part is if this is even remotely true, his teammates probably know, you know, like th- that it might. Eat. So if this could be public damage control. It could be private damage control, but we're probably not going to know. It's going to be about whether whether those individuals, including, you know, involved in a tweet series, Miles Turner, you know, that, that came up <laughs> a little bit. Um, but what I was what I was going to ask you other than that was, you know, you you follow track the whole NBA as well. We're basically a week from now. We're going to know a lot more than we do at this moment. Both the draft will have been concluded. We, you know, tr- everything will have been unfrozen. The dormant volcano will have erupted. What are you paying the most attention to? What are you kind of like? What tea leaves are you looking to read in this early stage of the off season? I mean, I think the first obvious thing is just like, is Chris Paul going to get traded to Phoenix as soon as the league year starts? Um, that I feel like that's the first domino that has to fall because he should I think he at least should be in play for Milwaukee for Philadelphia um, you know 
shout out a few other teams that you could think of that might be in play for him. But like, maybe if he the goes, Lakers, that'd be the maybe, most interesting. So if he goes to any of those teams, those teams immediately kind of jump out as the title favorite at that point, right? I mean, even Philadelphia would probably go from a mess to you would imagine they'd be a really strong title contender at that point. So wherever he goes, that should have a massive ripple effect. So once that happens, I think that's going to change a lot of the short-term plans or or maybe not change a lot of the short-term plans around the league because if he goes to Phoenix, I don't think anybody is thinking, well, Phoenix is a juggernaut this year. We can't take them down, so we can still go all in in this year. So I, I think that's the big thing, and that's how it is most off-seasons, right? I mean, pretty much every off-season for the past five years, we've pretty much just been waiting for one superstar domino to fall, and then that kind of will have that cascading effect from there. I'll throw a couple out there. One, what contract does Anthony Davis sign? We, we know that I think it's pretty clear that he's going to return to the Lakers, but is it a one plus one? Is it a two plus one? You know, like I think the two plus one is actually gaining steam again. You know, I, I originally argued that for a piece of the athletic a while ago and then switched when the cap dropped. But now if it's only going up, let's say 3% for next year, well, you can raise it 8% another way. So maybe, maybe he does a two plus one that lines him up for the 10 year max and all that type of stuff. So that's, that's, a, that's another, it's not a big domino in terms of the league dynamics because he's going to stay, but in terms of just kind of the looking, looking beyond, I think that's going to be really interesting. But then the kind of big picture one and doing the mock off season, which, which we recorded on Thursday, which is not all out yet, is is one of the separations between what we did and what might end up becoming reality in a couple of days is something you and I got into earlier in this podcast, which is how does the potential for reduced revenues and just the overall financial situation of the league affect teams' willingness to spend on a on a more practical level? So if you're would you spend a lot of money knowing that your fans probably aren't going to be there at least in full numbers does that matter is it or is it like hey we 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 because the luxury tax penalties are lower it's actually not that bad to spend as much as we were going to do before and the escrow so how do teams approach that that's one and then the related one depending on where salaries go how risk averse are teams and players so there're going to be guys like you could think about somebody like maybe Serge Ibaka or Daniel Gallinari or some of these guys where it's like, do we do I want to take a one year deal or do I want to sign a multi year and just kind of be done with that? Done with that. And my instinct has been that players were going to be risk averse, but I'm not a hundred percent sure where all that's going to go because they might be optimistic about 21 anyway. So uh, two things to say off of that would be one, I think that players are going to actually, I guess, be less risk averse and be willing to take on one year deals more because I think there's a couple of reasons. One, Miami and Denver's run, I think probably gives a little bit more hope to players thinking that if I can join a good team, especially for cheap, there's so many variables at play in these kind of weird times and the way that the NBA is functioning that there's no, it's no, the, the league is not as hegemonic as it felt in the past although you could say the lakers kind of maybe restored the idea of, of a, a hegemon uh, with two elite superstars in los angeles winning the title but you know i, I think if the lakers had a had a truly deadly foe to have to beat which they you know didn't quite have and maybe you know, if miami had stayed healthy during the finals they probably would have had you know i don't think the lakers would have looked like such a you know cakewalk champion the way that they did but so i think that guys like gallinari and abaca are going to look around the league or even look at their current teams well, i guess not gallinari with okc hellbent on rebuilding but they're going to think 
if I'm willing to at least take a one year pay cut, I could potentially win the championship and set myself up for the 2021 offseason where cap space is flush and teams will just have so much more money to spend. And that goes into my second big, I think like the biggest question I guess I'm looking at for this offseason is because there's pretty much no cap space. And teams are just stuck with their MLE, basically, to pay players out towards market rates. Does that mean there's going to be pretty much no movement because bird rights are going to be more valuable than ever, pretty much, for a player? And therefore, because so many teams are stuck with just their MLE, are teams going to have to break up that MLE to acquire multiple players as opposed to in the past where teams were kind of more willing to use their their full MLE to target one of those kind of borderline starting uh, guys. But like so many of the guys that are borderline starters or even legit starters that would usually be able to rely on cap space to get something in the teens, that money isn't there this year. And the teams that do have the money, they're not really looking to get any of those kind of players. It's a really good point and something that is, is worth watching. And I guess the other one, and this relates to the dormant volcano that you talked about before, is especially for the delete eight that have been sitting around for a long time, but it could be other ones as well. The the freeze is so fundamentally different. There could be things that have basically been settled for weeks, if not months now, that if those front offices don't leak a ton, we're just going to find out. And that, you know, it's, it's going to be dramatic for us, but it might not be dramatic. And maybe those teams have been planning on that the whole time. So it'll be like kind of a, a small shift. I don't think it's going to be anything major like a Chris Paul trade that's been pre-negotiated like well before now. Like maybe that's being negotiated now. But, you know, whether that's something involving the Warriors or the Hawks or one of these teams that – and this is something I was thinking about in terms of the bubble as well is this is an uh, inordinate amount of time, especially if you think back to pre-hiatus, for these general managers to kind of sit and think about their teams. And when you consider that 29 teams end the, end the season without a championship and a lot of them ended, and ended it in disappointment for various things, you could think about New Orleans or anybody else, how they react to that given that there's this time – where nothing can happen but negotiations and discussions, what what comes from this? And you know another another thing that's kind of on the opposite end of what you're talking about is play you know, player development. So yeah. we got to see all the other teams that were in the bubble. We all those teams that were watching their players all year and they're thinking, okay, we got to make a decision on these guys next year. How how good are these guys going to improve after this season with another offseason under their belts to work on their game? Who are they going to turn into when we have to make a free agent decision? And like like uh, you know, Jamal Murray, uh, it's, uh, Denver was very lucky that they had already locked in Jamal Murray. Although I think they already paid him the max pretty much, right? So I guess it doesn't make a difference from a financial perspective. But he was a great example. Uh, T.J. Warren, that's the perfect example. T.J. Warren, what is his contract situation going to be in the future? Jason Tatum is a great example example of somebody who probably was going to get the 30 percent uh um max anyway uh with the using the rose rule uh before the uh bubble happened and now was like an obvious lock for it at this point but there are a lot of those kind of players that a lot of teams got to see their guys come back after an offseason and and most importantly, got to see their guys come back after what was kind of an optional offseason where, like, you didn't have to actually try to get better during the offseason. So it was really good to learn about your players. Like, who are the guys that really care and that we can expect to grow and are worth investing in? And obviously that counts for all these free agents who, you know, people can see, like, how good Red, Red Van v- Fleet looked coming back from the bubble, how hard he played, how great his defense was. And they can, I think, have confidence that, like, what he did 
in the championship run the year before and a lot of what he was doing during the regular season last year it was not a fluke and i would probably feel more comfortable paying him now than i would have before the bubble so you know there's a lot of players like that that i think are gonna either benefit or the opposite after that well and then will it be out of sight out of mind for some of the players that weren't whether they opted out of the bubble like exactly like avery bradley who i think he's going to pick up his player option anyway but like those types of or the delete eight players where if you're if you just didn't really have that chance or you were hurt or something else like it, it i i'm absolutely fascinated to see where it goes and actually you met you uh you skipped over davis bertons who probably is yes. the hardest player to read in all of free agency right because there's who are the wizards really bidding against for him i guess if the i, I like he's the guy that you could see a sign and trade happening where some team is like we want to give you 19 million dollars we're going to figure out a way to do a sign and trade because i assume atlanta sacramento um who else is there that could possibly make a serious offer for him it's like none of those teams are I the mean, kind the of Knicks teams always could, at, but we like, don't like know yeah <laughs> that would be amazing if the Knicks decided to screw up their future to to take a mid-career sharpshooter who can't really defend or play. Yes. That, would, that would be... That I mean, would it wouldn't be the Knicks. worst thing they've done in the last couple of years. I mean, at least from an analytical perspective, they would have they would have uh, done something of some value. But no, you don't, you don't bring in Leon Rose to skip on a free agency sweepstakes and sign Adavis Bertans. Like, it's pretty... I, I'm pretty confident the Knicks are going to stick to their plan at least for one offseason here. Here's hoping. Uh, but I think that's enough for now. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Hey, I, I always love these pods where we're supposed to talk about something and then we spend, what, half an hour talking about the economic impact for ownership, uh, investing in the second tier, the luxury tax. It's a, that's, that's a Danny LaRue pod special right there. Absolutely. Thanks again to Jared Weiss for taking the time to come on. You can read his work at The Athletic. You can also hear him on the Grant and Taco Show and the Daily Ding. And you can follow him on Twitter at Jared Weiss NBA, J-A-R-E-D-W-E-I-S-S-N-B-A. Love having him on and very interested in where Boston goes. I think that there's a chance it is kind of more chalky as we got into and maybe, you know, they can't figure out something with Gordon Hayward and the Jason Tatum stuff is so straightforward we didn't even really get into it. But there's the possibility of something bigger and I brought up Miles Turner because he's kind of my favorite fit for them but there are a lot of other ways and Danny Ainge makes a lot of calls and so I, I'm really interested to see where that goes and I don't know exactly when Real Jam Radio will be recorded next week but there will be a lot that has already happened whenever that is and that's a great reason to subscribe and download every episode I don't know when it's going to come out but whatever podcast player you use whether that's Spotify or Apple or whatever else if you subscribe it'll pop into your it'll pop into your podcast player and that's awesome also great way to support us and you can also word of mouth or you can leave a rating leave a review that helps other people find the show podcast player if you're choosing it's great if it's apple understand if it's not and there is a lot going on if you want to check out my other stuff i have a bunch of written work at the athletic including the first team-by-team projections, at least that I've done, but maybe the first that anybody's done, for the 21 offseason, I looked ahead, and, and I'll presumably update or modify those as things change this time around. And then I also did the mock-off season. I was part of that for Dunked On. That is, dunk, part one is available 
as I record this now, two and three have been rele- have been recorded, but not yet released. They should be pretty soon. I believe those are going to be dunked on Prime. And so much fun with Kevin Pelton, Dan Feldman, of course, Nate Duncan. And yeah, drafts coming up. You can listen to the pod I did with Sam Vecini a little while back. And you can check out the excellent work at The Athletic and everywhere else. There's so many great people now. It's a, a wealth of information, which is absolutely fantastic. And I support, I love The Athletic. It's, they're my colleagues, but everywhere, really. Support, support great work wherever you can. It's much appreciated. And if you have any feedback on this show, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com is the way to do so. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I'll try to reply, but I'm not great at that. I will admit that, but you're writing it for me to read it. So I will promise I will do that. I do that with every single thing I receive at that email address. And that is all for now. So enjoy the insanity that is coming. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.